It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. I was sitting at my desk at the TV station when I got the phone call. He was leaving me and moving back to Florida to live with his mother. I raced home in an attempt to try and stop him from leaving, but all he kept saying was, you won't marry me right now, so I'm leaving you. My heart broke as I saw his truck drive away. I went back upstairs and grabbed a bottle of wine. I can't tell you how much wine I drank, but somehow my gun found its way into my hand. I vaguely remember things from that day, and it comes in flashbacks. At one point, I put that gun to my head. As my face was covered in tears, my heart was breaking at the thought of having lost somebody that I loved. I don't know how long I sat there with that gun up against my head, just crying and feeling hopeless. But out of nowhere, a really deep voice yelled at me, Don't do this to your son. You don't need him coming home from school to find your brain splattered on the wall. Put the fucking gun down. Call it divine intervention. Call it what you will. There was no one in that room with me. It was just me. That voice shattered my heartbreak and jolted me from the trance I was in. Liquid courage put me in that state because if I were stone cold sober, I would never have put a gun to my head over someone who walked away from me. I knew better not to do that to my son. The voice had gotten through to me leaving me in a huddled mess of tears, shame, and regret for almost having done this. Not even a year prior to this, I sat at that same desk and received a phone call telling me that one of my best friends had committed suicide by hanging himself. He was the one that would talk about taking his life all the time, and everyone would just brush it off because they tell you that if they talk about it, they're not going to do it. Well, I'm here to tell you that is bullshit. Even the ones that talk about it can and do follow through on their threats of harming themselves. So many of us have been affected by suicide. Many of us have contemplated it. Many have attempted and failed. Many have lost those we love to this epidemic. The ones left behind carry a cross to bear all their own. The soul-crushing pain the guilt, the overwhelming sadness, the thoughts of, why didn't we see this coming? What could we have done to prevent it? And the biggest question of all, why? The signs are not always visible. We don't always know what's going on below the surface in someone. Sometimes their smiles are very deceiving. Depression, mental illness, sadness, suffering, being bullied, feeling so alone. The list of reasons go on. So why are we not talking about this more often? What can we do to help those we love going through something so bad that they would want to end their life? How do we even begin the healing process after we lose someone to suicide? Let me read you something. On October 7th, 2020, I lost my youngest child, Joey. 
my beautiful boy, my Joe man, my sunshine, and my protector by suicide. I knew eventually people would ask how someone so young had lost his life. I didn't want to betray him somehow, and I fretted to share the news of his death. But so many people loved him deeply, and still do, that I choose to share the truth when I announced his earthly exit on social media. I said, I don't want whispering and gossip and speculation. I want people to know that you never know the depth of someone's pain. Joey was, is, and always will be very, very loved. He had many people around him that would support him with just one word. We will never know what he was feeling, what he was thinking. In the moment, it became too much. Joe Manland is dedicated to his memory, to the people that love him, and to anyone looking for something on the journey of healing. That was a post done on Instagram by Joey's mom, Ann Cabano. I've known Ann for a few years, and seeing her recent posts about losing her son have greatly touched me. Losing a child is never easy, but for this wonderful woman to be so brave, opening the dialogue that so many are fearful of doing, and in the middle of her grief, there are just no words. Anne is here with Kirk Nurmi and I to have this difficult and tough discussion about suicide, mental illness, awareness, and grief. Thank you both for being here with me today. Thank you, Robin. And I just want to begin by applauding Anne, in particular both of you really, but uh, applauding Anne for her courage, not only in the posts that she shared, and the healing journey that she shared so far, but in coming here today and really giving voice to it, I think, um, to a lot of people that, that need to hear that voice. Because I think it's one thing when we see stuff on social media, but it's another to hear the voice and the pain and the triumph that you're working your way through now. Um, with this loss and 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 I'm just humbled to be here to to be a part of that and and help you um, tell your story and in the story of your son I know it's emotional isn't it just woo Whew, I made it through that intro there just learned a lot about you um, thank you both uh, for the opportunity to to have this difficult discussion it's very important to me, you know. I wasn't sure what piece of writing that you were going to read. You, you warned me that you were going to read. Well, because it, to me it was the most important thing to me when I saw it because it's not even a year, and it's, it's your child. And, I mean, all the questions that we have, the answers we don't get, and for you to be so brave to peel back that layer and just share that so so quickly so many people just hide they they don't know how to express it but you expressed it so beautifully putting it out there to let everybody know that you know we can't stay quiet about these things we have to talk about them because in the silence that's where everything gets lost and a lot of times people don't want to talk about the ones 
who die from suicide because there's too much stigma attached to it. But those are our loved ones, and they deserve to have their memories be looked at. It's not necessarily the incident that took them that makes all the difference. It's the fact that they lived, and they're going to live on in our memories until we're no longer here to remember. So, you know, you shared those very precious words about your son. So instead of getting into the bad stuff right now, why don't we talk about Joey and talk about what it was like having him in your life growing up and all the crazy things that young men do. Tell us about Joey. It's funny. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, I just want to preface that by saying, you know, that this world is light and shadow. And I live in an existence as a light warrior. That's something we discussed earlier, but that's what I believe myself to be is I fight for the light and I, I believe that we don't see the light without the shadow. Let's see, they, they coexist. And also it's, um, it's a definition that people assign to it, you know, uh, I'm going on a little tangent, but when I used to um, teach at a local school, one of the things I would always tell my students is we have choices. We have choices in our our life. And um, we constantly judge ourselves by the choices we make. Oh, this is a great decision. This is a bad decision. And I would always say that I didn't believe in good and bad. Now, there's a lot of dialogue and debate we can have around that, but um, a little higher, a little, you know, from a higher vantage point, if you, if you understand that there are just choices. S- and, and this choice might have a celebration attached to it. It might feel really good. It might perpetuate more choices just like it. And this choice might feel really bad, and it might hurt people, and it might perpetuate... Um, choices, more choices like this. And that's our humanity. I mean, that's our humanity. And um, my son was brilliant. He was a brilliant, and I feel like every parent is going to say that <laughs> about their children, but he was, he was brilliant, and he was a, a bright, bright light, and I actually learned so much about him at his funeral that I did not know about him. He was very private and there was an, there were an endless amount of people that kept going up to share stories about him, about how he helped them. You know, individuals, I was where I can't believe that he made this choice to, to take his life. Um, they would say they would come to the podium and I was at this place last year and he talked me off of a cliff and he talked me into sobriety and and he gave me a viewpoint he reframed and gave me a viewpoint of the world that has helped me today and they just kept going up and it was all these young um, young adults primarily that were going up that he would mentor and um, on his birthday the same thing a bunch of individuals got together and all of these young adults come up to me one at a time and ask if they could talk to me privately and they all spoke to me privately and each one of them had a story about the magic that he was Um, I remember one of the young men said you know I would walk into a room 
And Joey would see me across the room and he would look at me and I wouldn't be feeling so great. And he could tell just by looking at me across the room and he would come over and he'd be like, hey, what's up? What's up? What's up? And the, the you know, he said, I would say to Joey, not now, man, I don't want to talk about it. And he goes, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about it, talk about it right now. <laughs> and he would make them talk and make them talk it out. And, you know, that's, he was clever. He wasn't just humorous. His humor was clever and quick. And, um, you know, he was, he, he had not discovered his own brilliance. That's, that, you know, that's probably the saddest thing is that he never had a chance to discover his own brilliance and really understand what he brought um, to the world. And he was just loved, so loved, like still so loved. And there's so many people that still reach out to this day. They text his phone. They leave voice messages on his phone. They message me on Facebook. They message me on Instagram. They send me text messages. All all these people that whose lives he touched and... You know, I think that that is just a demonstration of our humanity. You know, we're, we're living, we don't know what the great mystery is. Like, there's a great mystery. A lot of people, uh, you know, philosophize, or is that a word? They mm -hmm. philosophize about it, and they uh, argue about it, and they present evidence, qu air quotes, evidence, and to tell you what the great mystery is but the truth is we don't know we do not know the only fact that we have is that we know when we're alive and we know when somebody has died that we know we don't know what makes somebody alive and what makes somebody dead that that magical thing we call life we don't know that we don't know where it comes from where it goes if it goes we we have no idea uh, we have there's a lot of faith there's a lot of beliefs there's a lot of religions there's a lot of spiritual ideas but the if if you are pragmatic and fact-based we don't know we don't know and i'm from a spiritual kind of mindset, um, I think maybe that helps me to talk so soon. I don't know why I can talk so soon. I am in therapy, just so the listeners know, I immediately went into grief therapy. I go once a week. That's I go smart. Every week, I still go. And I went this morning. And I think that therapy is such a, is also a stigma. So I, I like to say mental wellness right. is our focus. And that's important. And But you have to do the work. If you don't do the work, you can have all the tools in the world and it won't mean shit. There's a lot of truth in that. Definitely. And, and as someone who is so close to someone, tell tell about because you mentioned a lot about your spiritual beliefs and that and that sort of thing but ultimately admitting we we have no idea can you explain to us how those maybe combined with your therapy have really helped you 
deal with this and, and, and evolve and connect to it in a, in a different way? Well, it's an interesting question because I've always lived what I have referred to as a spirit-led life. So I get up in the morning and I say, God, spirit, whoever I'm praying to, uh, what's mine to do today? What's mine to do? And I have always felt like the universe has had my back. It's like, go here, do this. I've always felt very led and guided to make the decisions I make, which on the outside can look very like wishy-washy, but I don't care. I really don't care. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And what I felt like, because there's the before and there's the after, and anyone who has lost anyone that's going through a journey of grief will tell you, there's the before and there's the after. So in the before, I lived a very spirit-led life, like I just described. The decisions I made were based off of what I felt like I was being told to do on divine assignment. And the after, which is where I am now, and the immediate after, um, I felt like the universe did not have my back. And I felt betrayed because I had devoted my life to a spiritual practice and a, you know, a ministry of love. And in the after, I was like, this is a bunch of bullshit. Like, you, you know, this, this is the work I do. I talk about mental wellness. I talk about, you know, I'm an advocate for mental health. And everything I do is about teaching people to understand people. Everything I do is about humanity and, and, and trying to foster compassion and trying to um, just teach people to not be so mean. And in the after, I felt like a fraud. I was just like a fraud. In the before, I'm coaching people and counseling, spiritually counseling people and and supporting their well-being and then I'm over here and I'm going well what I can't even help my own son like I had a conference on suicide awareness and bullying I did a film on suicide I did talks on suicide and then my son dies by suicide but, but I, I think and, and Robin I know you talked about your your friend and Anne said a important word I think um, and that's betrayed right mm -hmm. um, betrayed and having our world shook up our belief system shook up by the loss of an individual and I get the sense that there's you know I was thinking about this today I mean the, the friend I had lost to suicide one of the thoughts and, and we were law school classmates close but not as close as I think you two were to the people in your lives but you always get that sense of you could have done something or like what Anne really described with the, her background and everything and I think she probably um, probably maybe used that as a way to beat herself up a little extra hard yep. you know yep. um, as a way to beat ourselves up for not knowing not understanding not connecting like you said feeling like a fraud because it can help your own son and I was wondering Robin if if you felt that same way with your close friend and feeling like you 
somehow betrayed her or didn't live up to what you should have been for her? Well, I've had a lot of suicide in my life, and, and the one I preface in the beginning of the show is actually a male friend who killed himself at 29. And, you know, I've been around people that have suffered greatly with mental illness. And with Dennis, when he committed suicide, he was always calling me. And usually it was, you know, alcohol-driven. He was always crying on the phone and talking to me. And I was always there. But the same guy that I talked about putting the gun to my head over that was leaving me said to me, you've got to tell Dennis to stop calling this 2 a.m. bullshit that's got to stop. So when I told that to Dennis, you can't call me after a certain hour, I felt guilty as fuck when I got that phone call that he had killed himself because I was a lifeline for him. And it took me several years before I got over the guilt of that. And it just broke my heart that a year after that suicide happened, that same guy that said, shut off that line of communication to your best friend, left me. And then here I am at the point of wanting to kill myself over somebody leaving me. But I think we feel this, it's like we're that center. We, we feel like we have that relationship with that person that's good enough that if they're feeling something, they're going to trust us to tell us. And, you know, even four years ago, losing another friend to suicide, she didn't tell any of us. She compartmentalized her friendships. And I spent the last two days of her life with her. I dropped her off at 7.30 at night. And she put a post on Facebook at 10 o'clock that said, I am done. And we found her 12 hours later dead. So we don't see the signs. We don't pay attention sometimes. The little, the little quirks, the little things that are said. Because a lot of times they're making jokes. They're cracking jokes. Or as in Dennis's case, he would talk about wanting to kill himself all the time. And everyone just used to say, yeah, Dennis says that all the time. And, you know, the day I got that phone call, Paul said to me, well, he finally did it. And I'm like, what, quit the band? No, he killed himself. That's why I say it's bullshit. Because you have to pay attention sometimes. And even when you do pay attention, you still are going to miss things because they're not going to reveal everything. And in, in Sarah's case, the three of us went hiking that day. She killed herself that night. Here's the messed up thing. The next morning, I go through the pictures, and I don't pay attention to the pictures. I post several of them and tag the girls. After I get home in in the evening from finding her and talking to the sheriff's office and helping other people get through the loss of her, trying to help, I go through my roll of pictures, and there's a picture of her where I believe she contemplated the moment of suicide because... This woman always had beautiful pictures, always smiling, always happy. Everybody knew her to be that. Nobody knew that the demons ran so deep and that the depression was so deep. She would tell certain people certain things, but there wasn't enough. So you do feel responsible. And I'm sure, Anne, you probably felt responsible in some sense because that's your flesh and blood. How do we not see it? But, but it's it's not always 
on display. I mean, no, I, it's not. I think back to 2015, and it's ironic that we have a, a cancer filming going on next door to us. And I had that cancer diagnosis. And if you remember, this was three or four months outside the Arias trial. And I knew immediately that it was from the stress of the Arias trial. Well, I had this cancer, this stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I remember, I'll still remember, it was a fall morning and I was going for a run, which is an act of self-care, right? And I knew I had cancer and I knew it was six rounds of, of chemotherapy and, and that, that I had about a 70% chance of it. I mean, they have it down to tables, right? And I'm in my late 40s at this time and I'm thinking, almost doing a calculation of whether or not I wanted to go into the chemo chair or not. And that's not putting a gun to my head. That's not, you know, doing other things. But it's rejecting care and thinking, okay, that I'm going to live this out because I didn't know that if I could rebuild my life. And we can talk about the temporary nature of some of our problems and everything as we move forward. But I bring this up now as a way to share that I didn't share this with my wife. There were no signs of it. Um, and, and maybe it's different because it wasn't that moment. You know, sometimes you wonder with people if it's, if it's a moment or it's a contemplation. For me, it was a contemplation of whether I was going to go into that chair or not. And I didn't share any of that with her. Knowing that, and, and I had to on my own then, and, and I felt like I had to on my own, reconnect to the reasons I wanted to live, not just because I didn't want to make her a widow. I didn't want to invite her into the process because, of course, she's going to say, you know, I love you, I want you around, et cetera, et cetera, right? But at the same time, it was my process. And I think that that is something that sometimes can get lost in, a, in this kind of survivor guilt element because sometimes there's no there's no display and sometimes maybe it's perf you know purposely held out and of course obviously ultimately over time had i not gone in the chemo chair i would have had to share that decision with my wife but ultimately i made that choice to go in the chemo chair but but the point being it's it's not always obvious and and the guilt that we carry or the, or the the baggage that we carry especially you know and saying you know i'm an intuitive i feel like a fraud et cetera, et cetera. That's that's just not true. I mean, it might be a story you used to bash yourself for your guilt, you know, but it's not true. I don't. So let me let me add on because that is a place that I was at, and um, I don't. I think survivor's guilt is human. Mm -hmm. um, for all of us, we feel like we have control over other people's decisions. And ultimately, what I know to be true, what I knew to be true in the before, I know to be true in the after, is that I, that was my son's decision with the tools he had and that moment of his life at that time because he the um, 
someone had called a wellness check on him and the police officer came to the door and 10 minutes later he was dead. So they did a wellness check on him. His friend was on his way over. It's his friend that found him. And he had talked with his siblings on the phone all day long. And I think if we get caught in this, which I did because I'm human, mm-hmm. yeah. get caught in this cycle of why, 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 why? Well, I, I do know the things I learned after, after his death. I know, um, I feel like I can understand some ingredients to what was going on with him. And he um, was just becoming aware of some complex PTSD that he had. And um, there are some other factors involved, because I do believe in privacy. Um, I didn't scour through his phone. I didn't scour through his journals. I didn't scour through his belongings. I didn't um, go on an investigative search to try and get answers that wouldn't matter anyway, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I knew enough. I knew enough. And the only thing I really needed to know was that he was no longer alive. That was it. And um, I had already had my ideas about suicide. I had already come to some ideas based off some interviews I had done for a film about two or three years prior to him um, taking his life. And I had also, I, I lost a friend named Nicole, and she hung herself. And I was the last person on the planet that would even take her calls. And when, you're, when you mention not taking the call and not being there, I, at that time I was um, a store manager um, for a store called Fashion Bug, and we, I was, like, dealing with store manager stuff. And she would call me all day long, all day long, all day long, obsessively. And I'd be like, hey, girl, you okay? Okay. And I remember she called. I picked up the phone. I'm like, hey, let me call you back. I'm right in the middle of dealing with a customer. And that was it. I called her back, and she never answered. Mm. And she did talk about it. She talked in great detail about what she was going to do. And she came over and hung out with me and my children and I made her dinner and I remember that last, the last encounter with her and she did, she did it. And that one I internalized for a long time because at that time I didn't have any access to um, self-care tools or uh, healing tools or any comprehension of even how the brain works and our neural pathways and you know, what trauma looked like. I didn't know any of that then. And I think that informed a lot of my decisions from that point forward. Um, But I, when people end their life, what they're ending is their pain. People are ending their pain. Mm -hmm. And I certainly have had times in my life where I've cried to the depths of my soul um getting the phone call about joey it was probably the 
top traumatic experience that I've had and I was already healing from the traumatic experience that had happened earlier in that year and um, if that was the type of pain that my son was feeling when I got the news of his death if that was the type of pain that he was feeling in that moment and he didn't know what to do with it and you know he had the means to take another route um, the hard truth is then what you know I thought if we had been able to walk in at that moment we could have stopped that moment but would there have been another moment would we have been able to get him access to the mental health support that he needed with all of this like with everything coming to this jumble of pain that he was not able to untangle you know the the problem is our is mental health care so here I am this mental health advocate and we like it's so difficult to actually get someone care if someone has ever verbalized to you I need help right now I'm feeling suicidal if you have in that moment tried to get care for that individual you might be shocked at how uncaring and and lack of access in that moment and I know that there are a lot of resources out there and I'm sorry that I don't actually have the resources That's okay. to give on this um, podcast uh, but my focus was really just talking about the experience you know I am I'm nine months after we're in the nine-month period, and which is pretty profound as a mother, right? Because it takes yes. nine months to grow your child, and now we're at the nine-month mark. Well, it's just profound that you're actually sitting here talking about it when it's still so fresh. I mean, it's, it's difficult enough to even have to live through it, but to open yourself up and talk about it so soon is just... I mean, my heart is so with you on this because... It's hard to lose a child. It's very difficult. Yeah. You're brave for being here and talking about it. I don't know if I'm brave or if I just feel a sense of this is what I can do. What I can do is talk and what I can do is share openly and vulnerably. And, you know, I've always had a philosophy I don't know if it really applies to this, but like I'm not afraid to be new at something. I'm not afraid to try whether I know how to do it or not. And this is the case here. Like I don't, you know, you said, well, in the introduction, you said here, here's Anne while she's in her grieving journey. But the truth is I will always be on the grieving journey for the rest of my life. Yep. That's the way it is. And it's not something you get through. You don't get through it. You don't. And you also, also you don't get closure. Mm-mm. It's something you don't get closure on. You don't get through it and you don't get closure. So what are your options? Right? What are your options? Well, my option is to walk with it and name it as it comes up and not avoid it. I just walk with it and you know sometimes I look 
like I'm out of my mind. And you know what? That's okay. Because if we could normalize what trauma looks like, then maybe individuals would be hurting less in private because it wouldn't be such a stigma to have a freaking adult tantrum that, that looks like you're out of your mind. You know, if people could recognize what emotion looks like when it's expressed instead of rub some dirt on it, you know, rub some dirt in it, suck it up, get over it. Aren't you through this yet? Gosh, hasn't it been, it's been nine months. Work tells you you get three days off or some shit like that when you work for a company, right? Oh, you lost your child by suicide? Here, take three days off. That should be good, right? But we're just, it's a perpetuation of swallow it down, swallow it down, swallow it down. And I won't, and I never have, and I never will. I, I always openly talk. So in this moment today my ability to compartmentalize my pain serves me but that's always served me in everything I've done and if I'm asking people to come to the table and talk about their vulnerabilities and their deepest pains and in these films and all these things that I do then I'm a hypocrite if I can't do it as well in my opinion I have to step up to the mic literally in my pain and in my vulnerability and be willing to also be vulnerable because that's the example. That's the only thing I can do. The only thing I can do is say, I'm a human, I'm hurting. I have days where I lay on the couch all day and I have days where it takes me an entire day to do dishes because I have some kind of emotional block over a mug that's in the kitchen that was my son's or this, you know, he used to fix the tub and so I'm ignoring the fact that the tub is broken right now because that was his job like that's real and I'm not the only one that goes through that you know when I wrote the piece about my son I was I started writing that in the airport I was stuck in the airport because I was unset when I got the news and I couldn't get home and I was alone in the airport during the pandemic with a mask on my face, bawling my eyes out, trying not to cry because I was afraid everyone was going to think I had COVID with an, a runny nose and the, and the investigators calling and the, the guy, the um, guy from the, the medical examiners calling. And then the um, people that the organ donation place is calling. And I'm sitting like here in the middle of the airport thinking, apparently I can handle this I don't know I don't know if I handled it I don't know you just can only choose you know one day at a time when you're in recovery from addiction it's one sometimes it's one hour at a time it's one 10 minute slice of time to get through and sometimes you do you have a week at a time you know, sometimes you're lucky because you've done some work and you've moved it out. Um, there's this quote from the show Sex and the City where Carrie is talking about this date that she went on. And um, it ended really quickly because she said, I guess I was emotionally slutty. 
And that's how I've always felt, like I was emotionally slutty. I mean, I have to essentially exploit, in a way, my own story so that other people might feel a little strength in knowing that it's okay to talk about your story. You don't have to wait till the perfect time, you know? And this is an amazing opportunity, I feel, because the suicide prevention places won't even allow me to show up and help. You have to, I'm not qualified yet. I don't know how much more fucking qualification I need, but I have to wait two years. I guess it's a mental health thing. That's fine. I'm not a mental health expert according to their qualifications, but that's not true. And so I'm talking. You asked if I would come talk, and I'll talk, and I will answer questions, and I'll talk openly and vulnerably about it. And not only that, I'm making a film. It's called Joe Manland. Not you, the first people I've said it to publicly. It's called Joe Man Land. It will be done before September, which is Suicide Awareness Month, about my son. And I'm going to act in a film for Melissa Farley, who's directing a trilogy about I'm going to not act. It'll be me talking about my son or whatever story I write for it. It's about mental health. You know, you're shedding light on important things, though. That's I'm still kind of in shock with what you said. They won't even allow you to talk to people with the suicide prevention. That doesn't make sense to me because who better to understand the pain of another parent losing a child than a parent who has lost a child? It's not it's not that every situation is the same, but it's relatable on some level. And the fact that you can give another parent that platform to say I have an understanding I don't know your child I don't know you share that with me so that I can know and I'll share my story with you and that's how the camaraderie in this happens this is how people heal I mean you go to AA and NA and you stand up in front of a group of people who have gone through the same thing and I understand this is not suicide but it works in the same sense that if other people who are alcoholics and who are in an NA are helping others, why can't people who are suicide survivors help other people who have gone through that same thing? Because we have that armor. We understand what that is. Mm-hmm. Ah, but you can. See, that that's the thing. I... This, I think, is something that's just built in me. Like, I worked in hospice with hospice patients, but I didn't work through hospice because I wasn't qualified according to them. But for five years, I worked with hospice patients, and I helped them how I wanted to help them. And this is, you know, when you're you're talking, what I immediately flashed back to was when I finally got, when I finally got home and I was, home at my mom's house I didn't go to my house because my son died in our home I immediately went to my mom's house where my whole family and all of our extended family and everyone was there and people say all kinds of things I know people are just trying to be kind but I think that we could give people a lesson in how to show up to tragedy because people also say really stupid things and um and I know they're coming from a good place, but I'm just saying, in that moment, 
I didn't care if I was judging. I didn't want to hear stupid things being said to me. And I lived a life of neutrality, and I wasn't neutral. And the only people that brought, that I could hear words coming out of their mouth were the people that showed up that I knew that had lost a child, that came directly up to me, and they weren't, there were no qualifications, there wasn't anything. Three of them, three people that I know personally came up to me and said, it's gonna hurt, but you'll be okay. At some point you'll be okay. And you know, when you're in pain, you just want someone to tell you that it, you're gonna be okay. But I couldn't hear anybody. The only people I could hear were people that understood that I had, it, my child was gone. That was it. It was no, the only qualification that I needed, that my heart needed, was that you lost a child. It, not how, not the age, you lost a child. Right? You lost a child. Because that is like... And, and ultimately, playing off what Robin said, I think you're doing that for someone else right now. Whether you can answer a, a hotline or not, it doesn't matter. Because to me, you're here doing that. You're raising the vibration. You're connecting to people that have had similar loss on a similar level as those people that knew you. You're going to do that through your your films and everything else that you do. You're going to bring that to the table. So, you know, to me, it's just phenomenal. You're doing great things and raising the vibration and worrying about this. It'd be great if you could work at the suicide hotline, but you have so many talents to bring to raise that vibration on so many different levels. And, you know, you just explain why. Because you have that pain. And you have that ability to connect to people that have suffered similar loss. And you can bring that to in a safe forum where somebody can turn on a show or listen to a podcast and get that connection. And, and, and that's, I think, what's so remarkable about what you're doing now so, so soon after. I mean, if one, if one person changes their choice for that day... If one person finds the courage to ask for support, if one person reaches out as a result of something that I have said, then it's worth every single bit of it. You know, I was sharing with you, Robin, I don't know who I am if I'm not trying to help. I was born a helper. I, I have great compassion for the suffering and what I can also tell you is, since my son's death, I have already helped a mother whose son was suicidal. I've already helped an individual who was feeling suicidal, too, actually. And I constantly have people reach out for support. And if I can't show up in that moment to support them, then I offer them options or choices that they can reach out to because it's not like you're on 24 7 you know mm. and i do put my own mental wellness first because you can't really help people if you're not taking care of yourself but 
I don't know. Why are we here on this planet? It's a big mystery. I don't know. I've always wondered. And the, and the human condition fascinates me. And the brain fascinates me. And like the same trauma can happen to 20 different people. And they can all have a completely different response and a completely different set of tools and a, and a completely different way of showing up to it or not showing up to it. You know, everybody's different and I don't, I don't know why I'm here so soon, as you say, but I, I, I've been ready for a minute and you asked at the time that I was ready and it, the timing for me was divine. Mm -hmm. It's the universe reminding me that, um, yes, in fact, we do have your back. You were angry because you couldn't help at the suicide hotline, but that's okay. There are other ways to help. There's so many ways to help. Besides that, that's I don't have to fixate on that, but it's true. No, you're using your voice in many different ways, and I love watching what you post online. And it's not just that first post that I saw you post about him and starting that page on Instagram for him, but I've seen you talk about your journey in the healing part of your journey because we never do get over the loss. I've had so many people get angry at me for still talking about my dead husband who's been gone 20 years. But when you love somebody, that love doesn't go away. That love stays with you. And there is no timetable for grief. I told people that, look, I will never completely get over it, but life goes on. So I've had to move on. You move past it. You don't let it go because if you let it go, that means you never cared to begin with. So how can you let something go that was a part of your heart that's a very part of your soul? And a child is a very big part of your soul. And I see you talking so openly on Facebook and Instagram about how shitty your day was. What you're experiencing, as you were talking about before, taking all day to do the dishes or sometimes not even wanting to get out of bed. The thing is, is you're... You're sharing your heart and soul, not just your loss and your grief, but you're sharing your own mental health journey, which is out there. You're exposing what you're going through and you're sharing that, hey, it's okay to be fucking human. It's okay to fall apart. It's okay if you got to call a sick day. It's okay if you don't answer the phone. I tell people all the time, it's okay to say no. Don't feel guilty for telling somebody no. No one is in your heart and in your head. They don't understand. They can relate to your experiences. They can relate to how you're feeling because they may have gone through something similar. But nobody knows what you're experiencing or feeling on a daily basis because they're not inside your heart and your head. And seeing you talk about this journey that you've been on the past nine months, I, I, I have so much respect for you because... Talking about death is not easy. People think that once the funeral is done, once the celebration of life is done, you need to move on. And I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I think there's a famous line in a movie that um, people only die when we forget them. They, if we keep them alive in our memories, they still stay with us to some degree. So... Why do people tell us, get over it, move on, it's been this long, you shouldn't be talking about it? That's not how things are in life. Because once you love someone, 
that love is the only thing that ever transcends the world. So that is the thing that we carry with us forever. And I just find it amazing that you've opened yourself up and shared so much, not just here with us today, but because you're doing this online and you're showing that it's okay to be human. It's okay to feel. It's okay to fall down. It's okay to get back up with tears. It's okay to be beat up because that's what it feels like sometimes. There's no other answer for it than other just feeling like you're beat to hell. Well, you know, Robin, if I can, because yeah. I think one of the reasons we do that is is something that you mentioned, this, this idea of getting over it. Mm-hmm. And then we use that as a standard because so many people will say, okay, you know, you had this disease as a child, you almost died as a child, get over it. You know, we have, we recently had a tennis player who rejected doing press conferences for her mental health and people, you know, get over it. And it's this very, you know, cool, what I would call the Kool-Aid man kind of idea of personal development. You're supposed to burst through the wall and get over it, which I think is a is a very American and, and maybe outdated idea. And I think one of the things that comes up is is that notion that we are supposed to get over it is a bat we can use to hit ourselves over the head in order to try to get over it. And if we began, you know, as as a collective society to start saying, you don't have to get over it. We take that weapon of self-abuse away and we accept the trauma as part of us and part of who we are moving forward, like Ann talked about walking with it, right? We accept that trauma as part of who we are. It becomes part of our journey, and, and whether that's, you know, again, through some of the things Ann's doing, the podcast we're having here today, that's really how we help people is by not getting over it and by sharing and being in that place and being vulnerable. Because when we, quote, unquote, get over it, then it's gone. And then, or it's compartmentalized, we think it's gone, and it's no longer of service to us or anyone else. And that's why, like when Ann said, walking with it and serving, I, I was so glad to hear that because it's not a matter of, quote, unquote, what we call healing or get over it. It's a matter of having it be part of your journey and and being a part of the journey that everyone you come in contact with or everyone that, that watches this, this film and, and all those sort of things. So that's really what I applaud you for is not feeling like you had to get over it and resisting that typical, stereotypical desire to quote-unquote get over it. Well, it's that holistic belief. I mean, you know firsthand, Kirk, right? You believe you got cancer from the stress of a trial. I believe that is accurate. So why do we walk around pretending like we don't have feelings and we don't have things inside? You know, it's it's about express. You got to express. You got to express it because it's energy it's energy and and when you show me a person who who says that they've gone through something traumatic and they're over it then I'll show you a person who has a disease in their body I mean you know we can argue that but that's where disease in the body is dis-ease in the the mental emotional system the thing we can't see Right, we can't see. It's the injuries we can't. See. You can't put a cast on 
on a broken, you know, shame trigger. You can't put a cast on something mental or something emotional. You can put it on your finger, you can put it on your leg, but so why, you know, you break your leg, how long does it take to rehabilitate? Sometimes you suffer from that. There's residual your whole life. Why is it any different in our emotional system, in our mental system? Why? Why? Because we can't see that. Do we think that you just get over it? No, you don't. You move stuff. You, you, do, you create tools to create new neural pathways in your brain so that you can make you know different choices and then you have bad days and our brain stands at that you know the crossroads it's like do I make do I go to the healthy choice or do I go to the path of least resistance even though it's not for my highest good that's how our brain works that's how our brain works and so when you're stressed and feeling down and tired and not eating right and not you know practicing self-care your brain takes the path of least resistance which is typically not the healthy path in your brain. So I don't know why we walk around and pretend like we aren't feeling beings. We are born with this continuum of feeling. Everything from joy to the opposite of joy, we, we feel all of those things, all of us. If you ask anyone, what is shame? What's shame feel like? We, first of all, we all know what shame feels like. And second of all, we'll all describe it different. What's love? What's love feel like? What's hate feel like? Right? What's pain feel like? I don't know. I get it. it, it I'm passionate about it. I've always been passionate about it. And I'm still passionate about it. it it's a reminder that I'm still alive. And that you guys are still alive. And everyone in this building is still alive. And... I can't do one single solitary thing about Joey, but I can about Jack and John and Maria and Marsha and Robin and Kirk and Lindsay and other Anns and all the other people. I can show up and say, hey, like I'm human, you're human, and together let's practice compassion. You know, it's just like this whole thing, like when, when this first happened, I had people coming at me, coming at me, like de making demands of the film that I was, the, the Boise Seven yeah. that I was working on, making demands and emails. And I'm just like, do you know that today I found my son's fingerprints on the bathroom mirror and you're coming at me with some bullshit about being credited for something because I haven't posted your name yet? Why don't you human up? You know, it makes me angry. I like what you just said, human up. Yeah, and ultimately that's it, right? I mean, we all, and what you said is true about, you know, compassion, and, and we all have that ability, right? We all have the license to be compassionate. We just so seldom choose to use it, or, or far too seldom anyway. And, you know, I think, that's really at the at the heart of this in in so many different ways is having compassion you know it begins with ourselves right it begins with the human in the mirror and that's where compassion really begins and that's where we need to when we talk about suicide or anything else is 
connecting to that human in the mirror and having compassion for that human in the mirror and taking that out to as you said every every person in this in this building and every person that we encounter every day it's true it's about self-care so the one thing i had going for me is that i was a self-care warrior and i still take up the space that i need i take up the space that i require for healing not in a way that i'm hurting other people but in a way that might be confusing because sometimes you're feeling so big the feelings are so large they're like the the size of the world but i take up i demand that the space i need is given as you should and i as wish you should i wish that a lot of i wish that people would, would learn that one single tool I don't think a lot of people get what self-care and self-love is all about. And that's something that's not taught. So, unfortunately, so many people in their well-being suffers because they don't understand that you have to take that time out for yourself. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. I do that all the time. I will go home and shut my door and I will binge watch for a few hours or I'll jump in the car and go for a drive. I'll get away from everything and everyone just because... Like you said, you have to find that time for yourself. You have to, because no one's going to give that to you. You're the one that's going to have to say, hey, it's my time. Done. You have to create your own safety, I feel. I mean, I find I I do have very safe people around me. And if people can't show up in a safe way to what you're going through, especially when you're working through something traumatic, you know, um, in the early days, and when I say the early days, there's no comparison. For me, I had, like, immediately when I got the news, my immediate response, which should say everything to you, after I got up off the floor and got myself together, I said, well, we need to finish shooting. Hello? Obviously, I was in shock you know and then when i came home and then i'm like okay well i'm not going to let this stop. i'm reaching out to everyone i'm like starting another fundraiser i'm like doing all this stuff right and then i hit the wall right and i i didn't i just put someone between me and everyone that was coming at me i just put a person between us and i said can you please talk to all these people because i cannot and there's some there's still some conversations I still have to have. But this is the conversation I want to have more than that. That's not the conversation that's important to me. Like before that week, a couple days before, my focus was all on making this film. After, my focus was on making sure that I was mentally well. And that's still what it is. I have to be mentally well. I can't, or I can't finish any of it. So I've been very methodical in the choices that I've made. And I don't know how other people heal. But first, I'm making a film about the journey of grief. That's really what it's about. Before Suicide Awareness Month, because I found footage of my son. I found this beautiful footage of my son that I shot that I forgot about. 
And then I'm finishing a film about domestic violence so that I have the courage to finish the film that I was on the set of that is now part of my history. I will never, ever look at that film and not remember that I was in Boise, Idaho, and my son was at, in our home, and we weren't together. I will never forget that. And so I have to have the courage. So I'm taking the steps to get there, and I just pushed it back. Won't, it's not going to be released this year. It'll be released next year. And I sure hope everyone can understand that. And if not, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You don't owe anybody an apology, especially after what you've been through. And if they don't understand that, then that's their problem. Wow. Yeah. (sighs) Pretty heavy conversation today, guys. I don't swim in in the shallow end, and I never have. I don't. I try to warn people. (laughs) Well, we don't don't swim in the shallow end. I told Rob before on the air, we... uh, when Robin and I first talked about this show, you know, it wasn't to talk about the weather. No, it's to talk about the things that most people are afraid to, but we need to. And, you know, I can't thank you enough for giving a voice to this today. You know, he's proud of you for what you're doing. I don't know if he is, but I hope, I hope someday he tells me he's okay and that's all I really want. He is okay. And he's very proud of you. He's very much with you, just so that you know that. But, uh, you know, this is a very tough topic, and we always talk about tough things here on Get Real. But I'm here to tell you guys that you're not alone. You may feel like you are at times, but reach out. There are people listening. There are people that want to help. And if one person says no, don't stop calling until you find someone that'll listen. And before we close this out, I want to share a little incident that happened to me the other night. I went out to dinner by myself, and I was midway through my meal when the server and a young man walked past me. The young man asked the server if I was alone. She told him yes. So he asked me if he could sit down at the table and talk to me for a few minutes. I wasn't sure what to think. And he did sit down. He ordered a glass of milk. He said he was going to pay for my dinner. I told him he didn't have to do that. We sat at that table for over 20 minutes. He didn't talk a lot, but he started to cry. He said he didn't want to cry in front of me, and I said it was okay. He kept telling me, that he had done a lot of bad things and that he wanted to be a better person and that his mother hated him. I shared with him that his mother didn't hate him, that maybe us parents, sometimes we get disappointed with the things our kids do. He said that he would be better six feet under, that nobody would miss him. I said, your mother would miss you. There are people that would miss you. And this conversation went on for a little while, and he just clammed up on me, and I said I would sit in silence with him if he wanted that. That's exactly what happened. A few minutes later, he excused himself and went to the bathroom and was gone for almost 15 minutes, and every thought ran through my head. Was he going to end his life in that bathroom? Um, I know he said he's done a lot of bad things. Was he going to come out and do bad things to all of us? 
I didn't know what to think. But he came back finally and sat down with me for about 10 more minutes. And I made him agree to not take his life that day. He said he was tired. I said, maybe you need to go back to your hotel, take a shower and lay down, take a nap. Things will be better. And he agreed that he would do that. So why I tell you this story is because you never know what a kind word can do for anybody. I'm still in awe of what happened with that young man the other day. And I hope that everyone out there understands that you need to be kind to one another. I didn't know who this kid was when he sat down. I had no idea what was going to happen. But I remained calm. I talked with him. I listened. And sometimes that's all you need to do. Sometimes you just need to shut up and sit with somebody. But give that person a moment. If someone reaches out to you and says they need help, don't turn them away. Don't turn them away. Just offer them a kind word. Help them in any way you can. And as always, thank you guys for listening. Take care. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.